Well, tonight is the last part of a five-part series on the book of Proverbs called Life Hacks. And the book of Proverbs, as we've been discovering, it, it leads the way in the scripture. And I would argue it leads the way in pretty much any arena for practical and useful tips for everyday life. It is the greatest how-to book that was ever written. But the sad thing is most people ignore many of its principles. Everybody wants God's blessing on their life, but not everybody is willing to follow God's instructions to get his blessing on their life. And so they go about life the hard way and the long way and the wrong way, when all the time God has given us these life hacks that lead directly to his blessing and they miss them. Somebody said, knowledge is power. That's a familiar uh, statement in culture, knowledge is power. Well, that's probably true, but wisdom is greater than knowledge. Knowledge may be power, but wisdom is perspective. It is knowing how best to use the knowledge that you have. It's also knowing what you don't know and being aware of that. It's very easy in this generation when we've got so many online resources and so much information flowing our way every hour, every minute of every day. It's really easy for us to be book smart and not Bible wise. It's really, really easy in this generation. And sometimes we rely on the, 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 the smarts, the intelligence, the capability uh, of man and we miss what God can do in our lives. And God can do more in your life in one moment of time than all of the intelligence of this world can do if they've got you in therapy for 30 years. He really, really can. And there are people in this room that are a testimony of that. God can break addictions that it would take years of counseling to break. And he can do it in a moment of time in his spirit. And so we're grateful for the Lord. And uh, we know ultimately we can only find God's eternal perspective in God's eternal word. And if this series, going through it, reading a chapter a day in Proverbs and gathering for these five Bible studies, if this series has done anything for you, I hope it has rekindled a hunger in you to have a daily interaction with your Bible, with the word of God. I even hope that somewhere you've learned something and you just went and scribbled it down in your Bible. I hope you're making your Bible your Bible, that you write in it and you pray over it and you love it and you cherish it. Now, one of the things we learned, it was one of the big pieces in this series, and because of that, I've tried to touch it a couple of times, and I want to hit it a third time tonight. It's critical to understand because of the unique way that this book was put together by King Solomon, compiled from many different sources and even many different cultures, it's really important for you to understand that in the book of Proverbs, these wise statements, these Proverbs, they are not promises. They're not on the same uh, tier as, you know, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now that's a promise you can take to the bank, but these are our probabilities, Proverbs, they focus on what is expected if you do wise things. Not every exception that you encounter in life. Um, they focus on what should happen. That's what they tell us. 
What they don't tell us is everything that could happen because how many have learned by now that life kind of comes at you random and sometimes it, it knocks you off balance and there's a, there's a sickness you weren't expecting. There's a, a financial setback that you didn't anticipate. There's a, a conflict or a tension that you, you didn't see coming, uh, not, not, not an inch ahead. It just all of a sudden sprung itself in your life. And, and so the, these are things that do sometimes happen to people. Proverbs doesn't address every single exception or every single thing that could happen, but it gives us wise principles, the normal probability of what will happen in life if you live wisely. For example, the general rule is that serving God is going to result in a long and a blessed life. That's the rule. And teaching your children correctly and spiritually that will result in them serving God too, just like you. But every one of us know cases where that didn't happen and, and people agonize over that and they wonder what in the world they did wrong. But that's where we need the whole counsel of the Word of God, brothers and sisters. More specifically, we can look at just the wisdom books, the five of them, Psalms and Proverbs, and, and, and then you look at uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Uh, you look at the book of Job. All of these books together, they're called the wisdom literature. And you don't have to go any further than those five books to get the point that sometimes you can do everything right and it doesn't work out. Job's life literally fell apart and he lost everything in one day. But he still served God faithfully. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He said, I don't know when I'm coming out of this, but I can tell you how I'm coming out of this. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I refuse to come out of this trial backslidden or bitter. I'm coming out with joy and faith in God. You don't have to read very far. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes, written when Solomon was older, written at the end of his life, toward the end of his reign. And Solomon has experienced enough of life. You know, some of us that are older, we read Ecclesiastes and said, there, I knew it. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's all dark, it's all depressing, it's all empty. If you're younger, don't read Ecclesiastes unless you go all the way through to the end. Please don't stop in the middle. You'll lose hope and laughter and smiles and everything else. Because Ecclesiastes is a little dark. It's, it's a little depressing. But even when Solomon sees everything that could go wrong and does go wrong in a life, when he gets to the end of that book, he says that because he was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. I can't guarantee that it's going to work out 100% every time, but I'm still going to teach knowledge. And I'm still going to end Ecclesiastes. The last book that Solomon wrote in his life, he ends it in 12 and 13 by saying, Fear God and keep His commandments. Even if it doesn't work out the way you planned or the way you wanted, fearing God and keeping His commandments is still the best way to live. Bar none, nothing comes close. So if life throws you a curve, it's not because God dropped the ball on you. It's just life. Now, Proverbs does one more thing, and then we'll jump into tonight. Proverbs puts wisdom in the context of the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not about dreading God, it's about deference to God. 
Deference is respectful submission to God's will. Deference is um, looking at God and realizing that he's God and you're not. I have a healthy sense of reverence for God. I recognize my place in his universe and his place is massive and eternal and my place is tiny and temporal. And so fear of the Lord, that's just a mindset. It, it recognizes that I am not God. And because I fear God, I reverence Him, I don't get to make up my own definitions of what's right and wrong and good and evil and moral and immoral. I don't get to choose that. I submit to God because I reverence Him. I submit to His Word and I trust after I've submitted to His Word and after I've obeyed His commandments, I trust that He's going to look after the outcomes. And whatever they are, I'm still going to trust in the Lord and I'm still going to be faithful to God. Now, one of the things that you've noticed as we've gone further and further in Proverbs, and if you've been reading a chapter a day with us, here's what you've noticed, that things get repeated over and over again. It's like sometimes on some issues, Solomon is a little bit of a broken record, and he'll say very similar things many times. And the teaching becomes clearer as more and more statements echo statements that came before. It's like Solomon is spinning this huge spider web of wisdom and the web is now sticky enough to capture our attention because he said that thing about rich people before and he said that thing about uh, stubborn people before and he said that thing about slothful, lazy people before and it starts to stick in our mind. It becomes memorable enough like a web to weave these principles in our minds and in our hearts. And that was exactly why Solomon wrote this book. It's different than any other book in your Bible. It's not a chronology where you start at verse 1, chapter 1, and you read all through the end, and it's all, all chronological. It's not like that at all. Proverbs is just all of these spots of wisdom and counsel and, and God's knowledge and commandments, and it just comes at you in random order, kind of like life. And so that's why he compiled this book in the first place. The Bible tells us the last part of Proverbs, starting at chapter 25, uh, these Proverbs from 25 to the end of 31, uh, those chapters were actually compiled by the servants of King Hezekiah who lived 200 years after Solomon. So it's still Solomon's wisdom. They're, they're searching through Solomon's archives. These are Solomon's Proverbs but they're compiling them 200 years after Solomon died. They're still going through the royal archives. And Hezekiah's servants must have felt like they had hit the jackpot of wisdom. And they're learning as they go and learning as they copy these out. Now tonight in our very last lesson, we're going to look at the last two chapters of Proverbs. Because they're kind of like a little epilogue. They, they really don't belong with anything else. But yet they complete everything else in a very beautiful way. Chapters 30 and chapters 31, um, they, they have um, two different authors. One chapter is attributed to Agur, the son of Jacob, and we don't see him anywhere else in Scripture. The other one is attributed to King Lemuel, and we don't see him anywhere else in Scripture. So in both of these chapters and in both of these cases, we know nothing about these men except what is written within the chapter that they pen and add to Proverbs. What we do know, however, is that their writings are referred to as prophecy. 
The first verse of chapter 30 tells us that what we're about to read is a prophecy. And the first verse of chapter 31 says likewise. Prophecy is inspired speech. It's an anointed utterance. And so like the rest of the book of Proverbs, regardless of where this writing comes from, regardless of where one specific verse came from, if it came from an Egyptian king or if it came from a Babylonian ruler, if it came from somewhere else and Solomon collected it and Hezekiah's men compile it. It really doesn't matter where it came from because we're told it's prophecy and God can use his anointed word to absolutely change our lives. Here's what the New Testament says about God's word, specifically about the Old Testament. Now, all these things, Paul says, happened unto them, God's people in the Old Testament, for our examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So I know we live in the New Testament, Paul says. I know we're under a new covenant, but we don't throw the Old Testament out. We don't discard what God did for the Jewish people back then because every one of those stories, every one of those writings, every one of those prophecies, even every one of those genealogies, there's something in there somewhere that's a lesson for us. It's amazing. Paul says to Timothy, his young protege, he said, all scripture. Somebody shout out all scripture. So not just your hobby horse verses, not just the verses that you've had memorized and committed to your mind for two decades, not just those verses, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and all scripture is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is profitable to us. And so you may be reading through your Bible sometime and you may literally think about this. I don't have a clue what's going on here. If that's true, there's a couple of things that you can do to help yourself. And this isn't really part of Proverbs. This is just part of Bible learning and Bible study and Bible reading. If you're struggling to understand what's going on, uh, talk to pastor, talk to one of the staff. Get a recommendation on a modern English translation of Scripture and read that. Some of them are paraphrases. They're fairly loosely translated. They really put things in modern street vernacular. It's pretty easy to understand. And what I always do, because uh, some of those things, they're, they're written relatively recently on the, uh, uh, on the schedule of Bible translations. So sometimes people's doctrinal biases creep in. And so that can be a little tricky to negotiate. But here's what I always do. I always compare it back to the King James Version, which was translated in 1611, and that basically predates most of the modern denominations. And so you can look at both at the same setting. And So I do that often. In fact, I've done it preparing lessons for this study. I'll get to a verse in Proverbs and think, I don't have a sweet clue what that's talking about. And I'll read in two or three different modern translations and then it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And go back to that original uh, language of the King James, which isn't original at all, by the way. The Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New. So, uh, you know, there's a, an old song tongue-in-cheek that says, if Paul and Silas used the King James Version, then it's good enough for me. Well, sorry to bust your bubble, but Paul and Silas didn't know who King James was. They knew who James the Apostle was, but they didn't know who King James was. And, and so, you know, those are some little things that you can do. And a, a, another thing that 
uh, you can do as you're reading through Scripture, you know, one of the things is just to kind of compare it in other translations. And the other thing is just to read what somebody else has written about Scripture, somebody that you trust. That's why your pastor's voice is very important. That's why your local church is very important. That's why uh, we're a teaching church. We believe just as much in the preaching of the Word of God as the teaching of the Word of God and vice versa. Preaching is the reach of the church. It's where we, we preach to reach souls and sinners, but teaching is the strength of the church, and, and it helps build us up, and that's why a Bible study is really important. Because Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I was in a service the other day, and uh, a preacher was preaching, and he said something. It just blew my mind. It was an elder, precious elder, Brother Billy Hale. And he, he got talking about one of those great big long genealogies. And he said, this genealogy, it says right at the top of it that all of these people were people that were faithful to God in this generation. He said, do you know what? I'm glad their names in the Bible. When I read down through now, I just pause and thank God that there were faithful people in that generation. I don't know who they were, but their names in the Bible because God rewards faithfulness. May it be said in some future generation that if there was a list of people written down from our time that were faithful, that our names would be on it. And so I thought, wow, I really want to go read that genealogy right now. And it's amazing. All Scripture. Somebody say all Scripture. And then Peter said this. He said, for the prophecy, it came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't just people kind of getting together and, and they were doing some kind of little committee and they were deciding what they were going to write in the Scripture. He said, no, it was holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That literally means they were carried uh, uh, by the Holy Ghost. And God inspired the words that they wrote. And that's why the Bible can be a source of strength to you. So uh, do your best to understand it, but, but, but grapple with it and read it. And, and I'll tell you something else. If you'll pray over it, God will, uh, he'll give you the wisdom to understand it. James said, if you lack wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you liberally. So uh, that's not really the lesson tonight, but I, I thought that's, that's valuable. Here's a statement that I came across years ago, and I really like it. It talks about the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a little move afoot in Christianity right now as we are meeting here. And, and there's even some preachers in cahoots with this. And, and they're kind of saying, you know, you don't have to worry about the Old Testament. It's the Old Covenant. It's not important. And, and you can throw it out. You can just start at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and just pay attention to the New Testament. Let me tell you something. They are absolutely 100% dead wrong. And here's why. Here's what they're not even thinking. The only Bible the New Testament church had to preach from was the Old Testament. They didn't preach from the book of Acts. They didn't have the book of Acts. They were living the book of Acts. It wasn't written down yet. The Gospels weren't written until A.D. 60, 30 years after Jesus uh, had died and was buried and rose again. It was 30 years later before Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote anything down. And it was 60 years later before John wrote anything down. And, and so they didn't have anything but the Old Testament. But do you understand that they had a powerful revival that shook the world using just the Old Testament writings? 
I don't know about you. I ain't throwing the Old Testament out. I'm going to love it and read it and cherish it and pray over it and weep over it and rejoice over it. Because Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, all of the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. He said, Jesus is God's yes to any promise you can find in the word of God. So if God said to the Israelites in Exodus, I am the Lord that healeth thee, I can go claim that promise and say, Jesus is God's yes to that promise for me. And that's how we pray over scripture. I love this statement though. Came across it years ago. New and Old Testament. The new is in the old contained. So the Old Testament contains the New Testament. The old is in the new explained. The new is in the old concealed. That's why we have the tabernacle and all those types and shadows and lessons to learn. The New Testament's in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old portrayed. The old is in the new displayed. So we don't want to lose either testament. They work together like two sides of the same coin. And so that's why when we go into these last two chapters of the book of Proverbs, we do so with confidence, knowing that God's going to speak to us because these are prophetic words, even though they were written by two men that we don't know and they don't appear anywhere else in Scripture. And the first one is a guy named Agur. And we don't know anything about him except what's in this chapter, chapter 30. But here's what he writes. This is amazing to me. Here's what he writes. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters like a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about God, obviously. But then he says this. What is his name? Now, that's okay. But this one, and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? I just get a little bit of a prophetic chill bump when I read that. Because Agur doesn't even know it, but he just jumped into New Testament streams of prophecy. Because if you read Paul's writing in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about that descending and ascending thing. He that descended into the grave is the very same one that also ascended far above all heaven that he might fill all things. And you know what comes next? And he gave gifts to the church. He gave uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Agur doesn't know any of that, but he latched on to a stream of prophecy. But then he says, what is his name? God. What is God's name? And what is his son's name? Now, how New Testament is that? Because Jesus was praying in the garden and he said this, Father, I have manifested thy name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Jesus manifested the name of God in this earth. What is his name? What is his son's name? Agur just jumped into a New Testament prophecy stream. And it's even more than that because Agur's words when he's talking all of this stuff about who has ascended and descended and who gathered the wind in his fists and who bound the waters in a, as a garment and who did all that, he's echoing a conversation that happened years before between God and Job. It was centuries earlier. After Job's friends came to his side in the middle of his terrible trials and they asked Job question after question after question, and their questions are little more than veiled accusations. 
Job, you must have sinned. Job, you must have done something wrong. Job, you're hiding something from us. It's just accusations. And then after Job gets discouraged and despondent and depressed and he throws more than a few tough questions of his own into God's face, God, why didn't you just let me die the day I was born? After Job's asked all those questions of God and Job's friends have asked all those questions of Job, God shows up. And God has a few questions of his own. God says to Job, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth. Declare it to me. Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. That's Job chapter 38. God does not give Job the answers that he's wanting to hear. Job wants to hear why I'm in this problem and why, God, you let me be sick and why, God, you let my children die. And Job wants answers and God doesn't give Job any answers. You know what God gives Job? He delivers a long string of 77 thought-provoking riddles. God describes the miracles of the animal kingdom and the weather and the solar system and many other mysteries of nature that Job and all his contemporaries had no sweet clue. And God's questions, almost all of them start something like this. Who and where and how and when and have you done that and did you do that and will you and can you and do you know and were you there, Job? It's just question after question after question. God is talking to, a, to Job as a parent would talk to a, a child that just doesn't understand. God is reminding Job that my wisdom is far greater, far beyond your understanding. And so sometimes, Job, you just have to learn to trust me. You just have to learn to leave it in my hands and know that because I know further down the road than you do and I know greater things than you do and I've got a will that is stronger and higher than yours, sometimes, Job, you've just got to learn to trust me. Can I say to you, brothers and sisters, that's one of the great important lessons that you have to learn about serving God. You've just got to learn to trust Him sometimes. Now, Agers learned this. Here's what he says. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. When he says every word of God is pure, you can look that up in a concordance. It means every word of God is proven. If God said it, you can take it to the bank. It's pure. You can't change it. You can't alter it. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And so Agur says, it's an Old Testament guy. Add thou not unto God's words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. He said, you be very careful about adding your opinion to the word of God. And very next thing that happens in Proverbs chapter 30 is that Agur prays the only prayer recorded in the book of Proverbs. And we get to listen, and as we do, we notice immediately that Agur has only two prayer requests on his prayer list. He doesn't have 10 or 20 or 100. He has only two prayer requests, and here they are. He says, two things have I required of thee, God. Deny me them not before I die. Here's my prayer request, God. This is all I need. This is all I want. Number one, remove far from me vanity and lies. That's number one on my prayer list. You see, he just wrote about lying or adding to the word of God. See, that's the pinnacle of pride. When you put your opinion on the same level as the word of God. 
That's the pinnacle of pride. And so that's the reason for his first prayer request. God, remove far from me vanity and lies. God, I want you to reorder my heart. Let me live with integrity. Let me have your priorities. Help me put your kingdom before my kingdom. Your will above my will. God, remove from me the vanity that would say, I can run the show and I can call the shots and I can do my own thing. So God, that's number one prayer request. Remove from me vanity and lies. And I got one more prayer request, God. My second prayer request is, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who's God? I don't need him. Or lest I be poor, destitute, and I steal, I sin, and I take the name of my God in vain. I, I, I get an attitude toward God. His second prayer request is for God to balance the priorities of his everyday life. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Just feed me with food con convenient for me. Jesus taught us to pray it this way. Give us this day our daily bread. What Agur's praying. This is his second prayer request and he's only got two. God, meet my material needs and fulfill my desires. But God, only give me as much as I can handle without it harming my ability to put you first in my life. Boy, that's a good prayer, brothers and sisters. Jesus, I've got this, and I want this, and I'd like you to help me with this, and I'd like to achieve this, and I'd like to pay this off, and I'd not like to have enough finances for this, and, and enough margin to do this, and, and, and I want these things. But Jesus, you know my life. And you not only know my past and my present, God, you know my future. So if you would give me anything that would take me away from you or distance me from you or make it harder for me to serve you or be a stumbling block to me spiritually, Jesus, shut it down. Don't give me that. I don't care how many other people have it, and it's not a problem. If it's going to hurt my relationship with you, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. I've lost count of how many people I've watched get a blessing and it turns into a curse because it comes between them and faithfulness to church, faithfulness to God, living a godly, holy life. I have lost absolute count in 40 years about how many people have messed their lives up because a blessing that they got, a blessing that they wanted, a blessing that they prayed for, a blessing that they bragged about has ruined them spiritually. And so Jesus... Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with food that is convenient for me. Ultimately, Jesus, I don't need money and stuff and comfort and status. I just need you. I just want you. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, you do not get to give us this day our daily bread until you first prayed, thy kingdom come and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So important. I think Agur's got a pretty good prayer list. Actually, I'd say I think Agur's got a pretty complete prayer list. It's amazing. And now in closing of tonight's lesson and this series, we turn to the last chapter of the book of Proverbs. It's also attributed to somebody that we really don't know. He's an anonymous king named Lemuel. And like Agur, we have no information about him beyond this chapter. But his words are referred to as prophecy in verse 1. 
And his name means devoted to God, dedicated, consecrated to God. That's his name meaning. So we know immediately that if these words are prophecy and if they come from somebody whose life is devoted to God, we know that there's something important here that God wants to teach us. We also know from verse 1 that Lemuel was a king. He had a wise mother whom he honored. And obviously, he contributed this chapter to Proverbs. So at least he contributed this chapter to this book of Proverbs. Some commentators believe that Lemuel is King Hezekiah. 200 years after Solomon, it's Hezekiah, and this is kind of a nickname for Hezekiah, devoted to God. And Hezekiah was a very godly young king, and he did many wonderful things for Israel, and he had a, a godly presence and a godly reign. And so some scholars think it's, it's King Hezekiah. 200 years later, he's having his men compile Proverbs, and they think that this chapter is from Hezekiah. Other scholars, they, they think that this king and his noble mother, that they're fictional characters, and they were created by King Solomon just to illustrate this book and conclude it in a memorable way. And, and 200 years later, Hezekiah's men dig it up and include it at the end of Proverbs. Maybe Solomon was too humble to put his fictional characters of a noble king and a noble mother at the end of his own book. So maybe they found it later. And that could be. And then I, I ran across this, and I love this. I can't prove this, but I love this. Some scholars believe that Lemuel, devoted to God, was a pet name for King Solomon given to him by his mother, Bathsheba. If that's true, then it makes this final chapter and this memorable section at the end of Proverbs, it makes it so very powerful and meaningful. Because you remember that Bathsheba was the woman who had an adulterous affair with King David and Bathsheba and David were later Solomon's parents. That first child died. And if this is true, that Lemuel is a nickname, a pet name for King Solomon given to him by his mother, then this is amazing because this chapter calls King Lemuel's mother a virtuous woman. And that's something given Bathsheba's sin with King David. And I got looking at that and studying that and reading over that and it came to me so forcefully. And again, I can't prove it. It's just some scholar's opinion, multiple scholar's opinion, but I can't prove it. But I got reading that and I got thinking, after all, if God could forgive David and call him a man after God's own heart, then he could certainly forgive Bathsheba and call her a virtuous woman. Brothers and sisters, that's what we preach. That's what the Bible teaches. The grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the power and the restoration of God. I just got immersed in it. This is the prayer of repentance that David prayed when the prophet Nathan came in and confronted him. Told him a story, trapped David in it. David said, that man needs to be judged. And Nathan the prophet said, you're the man. And David immediately fell 
on his face in repentance. And he had a lot to repent about. He had committed the sins of adultery, deception and lying, the sin of murder. He'd killed Uriah, his faithful servant, the husband of Bathsheba, just so he could have an affair with her. David was corrupt with sin. But when the prophet confronted him, he had the right reaction. The Bible says, He that covereth his sins will not prosper. But if you forsake your sin, you'll find mercy. I don't care what you've done or where you've been or how guilt-ridden you are over it. If you'll give it to God, He can cleanse it. He can forgive it. He can restore you. I'm just wrapped up in this tonight. And David had the right response when he was caught in sin. And he had no excuses for his behavior. But he had the right action. This is the psalm that he wrote immediately after his audience with Nathan the prophet, not many days after his sin with Bathsheba. Here's what David prayed. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and God cleanse me, from my sin. But that's not all he prayed in that prayer. He also prayed this. Create in me. A clean heart O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Oh, what a prayer. You need to pray that every once in a while. Don't get too far from a prayer like that. God, the heart, is, it's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Jeremiah said, who can even know the heart? So God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Whew. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David was an Old Testament king. David was an Old Testament singer and worshiper. But David knew how to recognize the Spirit of God and he knew it was a Holy Spirit. But we have something far greater than David because we're New Testament people and we literally have the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, not just up there in the heavens to be worshiped and prayed to, but we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. So how much more should we pray Jesus cast me not away from your presence and God who don't ever take your Holy Spirit from me Paul said in him we live and we move and we have our being so I can't go a day with God removing his Holy Spirit from me I don't need to go a week without touching base with God and touching base in prayer and in the word and, and, and having his Holy Spirit move in my life I wish somebody would lift up your hands. I'm not trying to be an emotional basket case up here, but I am overwhelmed with this stuff tonight. And just say, Jesus, don't ever take your spirit from me. God, arrest me and correct me and rebuke me and chastise me, but don't ever take your Holy Spirit away from me. I can't live without it. I can't walk without it. I, I don't want to be without it. Take not your spirit from me. Who? Oh my. 
And a, a prayer that twins that prayer is this one. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And God, hold me together. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Every once in a while when life has hit you hard and knocked you down and you don't know what to do or where to turn or even how to feel or process it, you need to say, God, I need you to come by here. I need you to restore unto me the joy of your salvation. I don't have a lot of happiness right now, but I want something deeper than happiness. I need joy in the Holy Ghost. I need the joy of my salvation. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. And here's what you got to realize, brothers and sisters. Saints of God, precious people. you got to pray like David prayed. And you got to understand what he understood. Here's what he said in his prayer. The sacrifices of God, the things that please God. He says in the verse just before this, you know, those burnt offerings and all those sacrifices in the Old Testament. David lives in the Old Testament. David stored up all the building materials to build a temple that his son Solomon would build. And in that temple, they would offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. But in the verse just before verse 17, David says, I know that it's not burnt offerings that really please you. Even in the Old Testament, David knew there was more. Even in the Old Testament, David reached towards something that was a New Testament reality. Here's what he said. The sacrifices of God are not lambs and bullocks and, and goats and turtle doves. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. I want you to take comfort and have confidence, brothers and sisters. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, thou wilt not despise. I don't care where you've been or how you've messed up, if you can just crawl, walk, if you can just roll your way into a place of repentance, a broken heart, a contrite heart, that, that groaning, weeping, repenting spirit, God will not shut it down. God will not despise it. God will not overlook it. He wants to restore. He wants to forgive. He wants to lift you back up and get you back on your feet. Oh, I just got so overwhelmed with this. If God would forgive David, then God will forgive you. End of story. If God would forgive David, God will 100% forgive you. I don't care what you've done. Oh my, I, I, I need to finish, but I need you to just lift up your hands and talk to Jesus for a minute before we do. Because there's something loose here right now. Something powerful is in this sanctuary right now. There's hope here. There's forgiveness here. There's, there, there's the love of God here just reaching for us right now. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. It would really move us along. Just like holy men of old were moved along by the Spirit of God, it would really move this service along if you just pray in the Spirit that God has filled you with. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Oh, I'm so grateful for the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, the book of Proverbs, 
ends with what the scholars call an acrostic poem. The last 22 verses of this chapter, verse 10 through verse 31, the, the last 22 verses of this chapter, they begin with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in consecutive order. You can't see it in English, but you could see it if you could read Hebrew. 22 verses, 22 letters in order. The book of Lamentations has a similar pattern. Uh, four chapters have 22 verses each. And the middle chapter has 66 verses. So it's like they call it a triple acrostic. If it was English, it would be A-A-A-B-B-B-C-C-C. The, the first letter of each verse. It's amazing. Psalm 119. We studied this when we went through a series during the pandemic of 22 sections. Each has eight letters. And in each of those 22 sections, in consecutive order, each one of those eight verses in each of the 22 sections all begin with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, it's impressive. And, and the, the structure here is impressive, but the subject of these verses is even more magnificent. You could call this the A to Z of wisdom because it's at the end of the book of Proverbs. It's an acrostic poem, and an acrostic poem to the scholars and to the ancient Jews. It suggested that when you did it in a structure like this, it's a complete, comprehensive summary of the subject. So this one's about wisdom. And you know this little passage as the Proverbs 31 woman. The Proverbs 31 woman is a daughter that any parent would be proud of. She's a sister any sibling would delight in. She's the wife every husband should seek. She's the mother every child would want. But most of all, the Proverbs 31 woman is a woman who pleases God. And she lives according to his commandments. The Bible tells us in these verses she is wise. She's a shining example of the fear of the Lord. The Bible tells us here she is virtuous. She's a living illustration of the very noblest ideals of humanity. And this, these, these verses also tell us that she's industrious. It's a powerful testimony of what consistent, godly ambition can accomplish. So this Proverbs 31 woman, we've read this and we know this little section of the scripture. She is the very antithesis of so many of the characters we've already met in these pages. She is the polar opposite of the sluggard and the stingy and the gossip and the glutton and the froward and the foolish. She is the exact opposite of them. And this beautiful section, this acrostic poem, 22 verses, 22 Hebrew letters in the Hebrew alphabet, this beautiful poem starts with these words. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. A woman like this is priceless, not only because of the enormous value of all of her abilities and capabilities, but it's because her values, because her convictions cannot be bought at any price. She refuses to compromise her com convictions, so she's priceless. And that's exactly why the heart of her husband can safely trust in her. 
Now, the Bible tells us, and it's a little controversial in 2022, but hey, what isn't controversial in 2022? The Bible tells us that the woman is deserving of honor because she is the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3 and 7. She is the weaker vessel. She's deserving of honor. But please hear me. The Bible calls the woman the weaker vessel as a, a, a complement of reverence. It does not mean she is weak. This woman is not weak. Verse 17, she girdeth her loins with strength and she strengtheneth her arms. She's been working out. These are military, almost masculine terms. They picture a woman who has the spiritual strength to go to war in prayer. And she has the physical fortitude to help her husband bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. She's a strong woman. And there are some of those women here in this room tonight. The Bible says in verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing. This woman has no need for excessive adornment and extravagant apparel. She doesn't have need for that because this woman is not trying to appeal to the eyes of man. She's wanting to please the heart of God. She knows Verse 30, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. You know why? Because favor of man and the beauty of the body never last for very long anyway. So this woman chooses to focus her energies and her life on eternal priorities. Yes, Peter says she has a meek and quiet spirit. Boy, that's been twisted. Meekness in scripture is not weakness. Meekness is strength in submission, power with purpose, and competence under control. That's meekness. Meekness is actually one of the strongest traits that you can have. Our modern proverb says, behind every great man, there's a great woman. But the book of Proverbs is far, far more specific. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. And the implication in that verse is very, very clear. His fame is because of her faithfulness. His confidence is due to her character. His reputation, that's a result of her righteousness. And his prominence in public is the product of her prayer in private. And some of those women are here in this room tonight. Don't you ever let anybody tell you that the apostolic church degrades and disrespects women and puts them down and holds them back. Nothing could be further from the truth because we know what the Bible teaches. There is nothing more powerful than a godly woman in communion with God, submitted to his commandments and warring in the spirit. There is no other power on this earth that comes anywhere close to that when it comes to the family. It's amazing. No wonder after her children and her husband have observed her consistent life in the close quarters of the home 
You know, somebody said, what you are at home is what you are, period. No wonder after they've watched her live consistently and pray fervently in the close quarters of the home where she can't fake it and she can't hide what she is. No wonder, verse 28, her children arise up and call her blessed and her husband also and he praiseth her. No wonder, no wonder. This woman's godly life, the Proverbs 31 woman, it's not just for women. The Proverbs 31 woman, her life begs this question. Do the people who know you best admire you most? That's a question to give you pause. Do the people who know you best admire you most? Or do the people who know you best know that there are a lot of inconsistencies and inequities in your life? And sometimes there's things that are a bit hypocritical about you. And sometimes the attitude that you so beautifully wear in public is not at all the attitude that you wear around the house. In public, people seek you out in the gates and they love to see you because you're so kind and you're so polite and you're so complimentary and you go home and it's exactly the opposite. The Proverbs 31 Woman, her life begs a question. At the end of a book about wisdom and integrity, her life begs this question. Do the people who know you best admire you most? And I pause tonight to say that I am a very blessed man because my mother is a woman like that. And my wife is a woman like that. And my daughter is a woman like that. And my precious little granddaughters, God helping us, are going to grow into women like that. There's no better blessing, brothers and sisters, than having a home that is filled with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and people who love and are living for God. There's no greater blessing. At the very end of Proverbs, this virtuous woman in the very last verse of this beautiful book, she is praised publicly in the gates. That's exactly how it's worded. That this woman, she'll be praised in the gates because she's so godly and she's so industrious and virtuous and wise. And her life will be praised in the gates. People will talk about her and say what an example she is. At the very end of an entire book about wisdom. That's pretty fitting because... It's in the gates where we first met Lady Wisdom in chapter 1, crying out her invitation, come feast at my table of wisdom. We met her in the streets. We met her in the lanes and the roads and in the marketplace. And she was crying out, don't go that way, come God's way. Don't, don't follow the way of foolishness and rebellion and sin. Come this way. It's, it's wisdom and it's peace and it's joy. We met Lady Wisdom in the streets in chapter 1. And in chapter 31, at the end of the book of Proverbs, in the very last verse, we come full circle. And there's still an open invitation for every person that reads Solomon's book to live according to the fear of the Lord and not be manipulated by the fear of man. And so, brothers and sisters, the way you walk the decisions you make, 
the paths you take, all of those determine your destiny. All of those determine your future. And in many cases, those decisions and those paths, they determine your eternity. So Solomon penned a whole book. And it was assembled together and included in the canon of Holy Scripture to say to you, choose wisely. Walk wisely. Thank the Lord Jesus for the opportunity of studying this book with you because I've learned a lot in a month just digging deep into his word and I'm so appreciative of that opportunity. And I'm appreciative of the opportunity of teaching you and your good godly people. But don't ever let your life become a facade of external public godliness and religion that shows up at church and it doesn't show up at home where you live your everyday life. We don't have enough services. We'll never have enough on the schedule for godliness in this building to be enough godliness to get you to heaven. It's got to be an everyday reality. Choose wisely. Walk wisely. Live wisely. There's a sweet and convicting and empowering presence of the Lord in this room tonight. I'd invite you to lift up your hands and your voice. Sister Kathy, come help me. Lift up your hands and your voice and just entertain the presence of the Lord for a moment. Oh my. Whew. The forgiving, enabling, restoring, motivating presence of God is here right now. You're doing good. You're being reverent. But remember, reverence biblically is not quiet. It's, it's actually loud. Lift up your voice in the sanctuary and bless his name. Reverence, biblically speaking, isn't... Western, modern, quiet. It's, it's Eastern, ancient, loud. It's, it's intense when you're reverent. I need a handful of prayer warriors to stand to your feet and just lift up your voice and pray. Lead us in that direction. Lead us into that intensity. We'll all get there in a minute. You lead us. Terrebo, lo darete, terrebo, colete, lehesia, sorreba.